All right. Well, come on back and you can open your Bibles up to uh, Psalm 104. And uh, before we begin, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about what you all are seeing and it's happening in Kentucky at Asbury. And I think even now, um, you know, uh, Autumn uh, Dennis, who just graduated from Lee University, uh, apparently the revival in Asbury has spread to Lee University, which is across the border in Tennessee. And um, I just wanted to read you something. I, I don't know if you folks you, you know who J. Edwin Orr is, uh, but he was a, a sort of a teacher who went all around the world. He was from Ireland, and many people believe he's sort of like the foremost authority on, um, on revival, uh, teaching on the revival. And, and he has a website still, and you could go out there and look at it, and uh, just wonderful. But oftentimes on Sunday night, we pray for revival and, and an awakening. And I, I wanted to read this quote from J. Edwin Orr. How do we know if what we think might be a revival is a genuine work of God. How would you know that? Well, one unmistakable sign will be repentance. Once, uh, here's what J. Edwin Orr said about that. He said that we really don't understand what we're praying for when we pray for revival. We think we're praying for ecstasy. And yes, joy is a byproduct of revival. But true revival doesn't begin in ecstasy. It begins with agony. It doesn't begin with laughter, but with, the, uh, but with tears and repentance. And I just thought I'd read that to you since uh, we were uh, talking in this, this weekend about Acts chapter 5 and the seriousness of sin and uh, the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, as we looked at the story or the history of Ananias and Sapphira. And I think uh, what a great time to go ahead and to continue to pray for revival uh, in, in, uh, in America, and especially our little place. And if it was going to happen, it would begin at the house of God. And why, how, or why and how it would begin, I think, is through prayer and repentance, real repentance. Repentance isn't sorry that you got caught. That's what a lot of people think. Repentance is the notion and the knowledge that the sin you've committed is a sin against God. And you feel sorrowful for that, a sorrowful repentance. And yet God welcomes us back by the blood of his son. What an what a amazing gospel that we have and that we have to share with a dark and hurting world. Well, here we go. We're going to start in Psalm 104. And I'm going to ask Gabe to pop up what uh, I've put up here, uh, I think, if, if we have it. Yep. Uh, and this is a quote uh, we'll read along with uh, from Charles Spurgeon about Psalm 104. Psalm 104, uh, the psalm gives an interpretation to the many voices of nature and sings sweetly both of creation and providence. The poem contains a complete cosmos, sea and land, cloud and sunlight, plant and animal, light and darkness, Life and death are all proved to be expressive of the presence of the Lord. And this is a fascinating psalm in this way. It appears that it parallels the creation account. That's what this psalm does. And 
as you recall, we're about ready to end the fourth book of the Psalms. When we get through with Psalm 106, we'll enter into book number five, the fifth book of the Psalms. And these ending Psalms here, these several Psalms in a row, 103, 104, 105, 106, are different avenues or that's not the right word, different reasons why you would praise the Lord. And it starts with Psalm 103, or yeah, Psalm 103, and there's no reason other than it's just the Lord and how great he is. And there's no asking for anything. There's just blessing poured out upon the Lord. That's Psalm 103. And that's the one that hopefully we're going to to memorize by the end of the year. Now, we get over to Psalm 104, And the psalmist, who we don't know exactly who it is, we have some guesses but don't know, is giving us a psalm that's based on creation. And uh, he actually, uh, or excuse me, Paul may have actually had this psalm in mind. So I'm going to take you there in one of his sermons in Acts 17. So go there, flip over to Acts 17, keep your finger in the page uh, of Psalm 104, Acts 17, and Paul here is in Greece, in Athens, at their Areopagus, sorry about that, and he takes a different tact in this sermon or strategy in this sermon that he has in some of the others, at least some of the others that Peter had done and some that he's done. And listen to what he writes starting in verse 24, or actually we'll start in 23. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it. You see it? There's the creation story. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And the reason I'm just reading that to you is, some people come to you and you're, 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 you're sharing the gospel with them. And they're interested maybe in creation. And I wanted to show you that Paul used creation as a jumping off point, or excuse me, a connect point, I guess I should say, with these people in Athens to bring them or to at least share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gets there. Different than if he was, or if uh, Peter was, giving a sermon to Jewish people, as we've seen in the book of Acts. He took a different strategy. So what I'm saying is it's just so important to be a great divider of the word and to know the creation story. And here, the psalmist does know it. It's clear that he does. 
Here he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And I just want to say, because throughout this time, especially as we remember and memorize Psalm 103, you're going to see this phrase. This is a call, bless the Lord, O my soul, a call to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth from a really deep place. Bless the Lord, listen, O my soul, from way in there. I want to bless the Lord. And you keep hearing it throughout. Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. I was thinking this when Jason was leading us in worship tonight. God is able. We were just sort of singing it. I mean, maybe it was just me, but I mean, is God able? And yes, he's able. So whatever you're going through, what the things that you're encountering, he is able. He's able to save us from our sins and save us from the power of sin over us. That's amazing enough. He's able to rise from the dead. He's able to handle our situations. He's able to bring us in or or move us down the path of Christ-likeness. And all these things, including the fact that he's able, or in, in, in addition to the fact that he's able, he's very great. And I love that. We say great a lot or awesome. But the Lord is the one who's great. You are very great, the psalmist says. You're clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as a garment. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Let there be light. Ever remember that? (laughs) Right? And that's uh, certainly that. And then, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chamber in the waters. Who makes the clouds his chariot. Who walks in the wings of the, uh, the wind. Who makes his angel spirits, his ministers, a flame of fire. This is Genesis 1, 6 through 8. When they separates the upper and the lower waters. Remember that. You who laid the foundations of the earth. so that it would not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went into the valleys or down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. This is incredible. Ever thought about this? You've set a boundary that they may not pass over. You ever wonder why when you're at the ocean, you don't just get plastered? It stops. And it goes back. There's a boundary. The tides, incredible. The tides. When you study of the tides, you go, seriously, if you're intellectually honest here, folks, this doesn't just happen. This is creation. That they may not return to cover the earth. And now you've just read Genesis 1, 9 through 10, the separation of land and the water. Or at least they're referring to it. That's what I mean. And then he sends the springs into the valley. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heaven have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. And he causes the grass to grow, the cattle and vegetation for the service of man. And now we're getting into Genesis 1, 11 through 13, when he gives the provision of vegetation. That Why? Because he's bringing forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. 
You ever thought about the bountiful provision? You, you walk into John Eagle, as you say around here, <clears throat> and you just go, wow, there's celery over there on the, you know, in the, you know, the produce area. That's pretty cool. Grab my celery. Well, where did it come from? I mean, right? And the apples and the oranges and all the different things and the Velveeta cheese. No, that's a joke. But, I mean, there, the Lord is so kind to provide for us and to bring all these things from the earth. The trees of the Lord, verse 16, are full of sap. The cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it's night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and they lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. And as one writer wrote, these the spiritual or spiritual truths are written into nature. You ever thought about that? The spiritual truths are written into nature, especially if you live here in southwestern PA. I mean, come on, folks. You all love the fiery red and orange and yellow leaves, but what happens about, you know, the second or third week of October, a big rain comes, wind hits, and all of a sudden there's nothing there. They're all gone and they're down and you're sad. And then for about four months or so, or maybe a little longer, maybe five, there's nothing on those trees. And then, you know, some of us work down, a couple of us here, we work in PPG buildings and we turn around and we look over there on Mount Washington. It's unbelievable. One day, you know, late March, early April, maybe a little later than that. And all of a sudden, the deadness starts. You can just see red things on all those trees over there. And you're like, whew, they're, they're red. the trees are budding. And then the trees come out. And before you know it, boom, there's all those leaves. And it's beautiful over there. And for a whole summer, you know, you get to enjoy the trees. And then in September, what happens is there's sort of a, a coloring in those leaves and they turn to uh, bright orange and blazing yellow and it happens again. And every day the sun comes up and then the moon comes out and then the next day the sun comes up and the moon comes out and you're seeing right there in front of you the faithfulness of God and you see rain that pours onto the earth and then as I've talked here about the seasons, I mean, the seasons are reminding you that death isn't the end, that there comes back to life, these trees. I mean, come on, have you ever thought about it? God's written his gospel right into the natural story of southwestern PA right here among all of the steel mills. It's incredible. And that's what this is talking about. And that's what this man this psalmist was writing about. And even um, at, as we ended there, there was the creation story of the land and sea creatures. Um, he did leave out in this uh, account. I don't know why. I think maybe because of the next two psalms, but we'll see. The creation of men and women. But 
Other than that, it just sort of follows along there. And what he's saying is when you go out into nature, who here likes to hike? Yeah, look at y'all you. Look at all you hikers. You like to hike when you go out into nature or whatever you do. When you're driving down the road and you're just seeing all this beauty and we're so used to it that sometimes we can forget to thank God and just recognize that lots of his spiritual truths are written right there into the nature that surrounds us. It's incredible. And this man, this psalmist, was magnifying the God of creation. Now, when you turn over to Psalm 105 and Psalm 106, it's really fascinating. Psalm 105 praises the God of promise or covenant. It focuses on how faithful God is. And it sort of details some of the history of Israel, but again, focuses on God's faithfulness. And then it sweeps into 106. You know, if some people ask, are the Psalms in chronological order or are they put together sort of in a flow? The answer would be no. But not these two. These two are put together for on purpose because in Psalm 106, you say, if, when you read it, you go, wait a second, this is a song or a psalm or a poem of praise? How can that be? Because in Psalm 105, it's focused on the faithfulness of the God of promise. In Psalm 106, it's focused on the fickleness of the people who serve the faithful God of promise. You get it? And so what I think Psalm 106 is doing, do you remember when uh, God and Moses have an interaction in Exodus 34? I think it's Exodus 34. If not, I'm sure you email me. But uh, one of the characteristics of God is that he's long-suffering. Remember that? He's long-suffering. He suffers long. And when you read Psalm 106, we're going to learn about all the different things that the people of God did that were sort of fickle or wandering or disobedient. And yet God was long-suffering with him. And that's the point of the Psalm 106, how long-suffering God is with us. So let's look at him real quick. Psalm 105. This one is focused on what God did in keeping his promises for his people. Psalm 106 focuses on how God's people treated God. Psalm 105, faithfulness of God. Psalm 106, the fickleness of people. Psalm 105, God's goodness and grace. Psalm 106, the rebellion and stubbornness of his people and the response of faithfulness and long-suffering. So here goes. Verse 1, Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. If you're in the evangelism class, or if, if you're not, <laughs> note this. What is the thing that we're doing during the day? We're giving thanks to the Lord. We are calling upon his name. Who here has been in a job over 20 years? You've been in a job over 20 years? Who here's just retired from a job that you were in over 20 years? Okay. How about 10 years? You've been in a job 10 years? Okay. It's so easy to go to your job 
and just sort of rely upon yourself without asking the Lord for the strength and the resource and the ability or thanking him for the resource and strength and the ability that he has given you to do your work. Here, give thanks to the Lord. And in the New Testament, that's one of the things that we're to God to give thanks to the Lord. It's calling upon his name. That means we need you, Lord. And then what's another thing you're doing during the day? Making known his deeds among the peoples. That's what we're to be doing, making known his deeds. And we're even to sing to him. Who here sings to the Lord? Yeah, praise the Lord. Do you do it on your back porch? Front porch. There we go. <clears throat> That's really cool. And you know, if you're sitting here and you're going, well, saying, well, that was weird. Well, David did it and his wife thought it was weird. But David kept doing it. Sing to him. What do you sing? Psalms or praises. Talk of all his wondrous works. Do you want to know how to witness to somebody, share the gospel? Just speak about the deeds of the Lord wherever you go. Not to be uh, no earthly good or anything like that. You can still do your job great, be good uh, at your, your work. That's the number one thing. Do that. Pour your heart into your work. Be the hardest worker. But man, when people ask you, you, you ask them, do you want to know why I'm doing it this way? I'm worshiping the Lord with my work. And there you go. They asked you. You didn't tell them. They asked you. So talk of his wondrous works and glory in his holy name. Glory in it. Brag on it. Boast in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who rejoice seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Who needs strength? Wow, only three of us. Yeah, right. We all need strength, don't we? We need strength from the Lord. And he's happy to give you strength and to seek his face and his character. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Now, the whole psalm shifts now. You get it? And here, this psalmist is going to recount sort of some of the history of Israel, their early history, and the implication is if God made these promises and he kept his word at the beginning of your relationship with him, what makes you think he's not going to keep them in the middle of your relationship, at the end of the relationship, before you go to be with him? Because that's what the people of God did. God would take them through the miraculous of the miraculous. And they would go on to the next step and go, but this time it's really bad, Lord. As if the Red Sea wasn't good enough. Look at it. He is the Lord our God, verse 7. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant. Just until the church age. Nope. Just until the millennial kingdom. Nope. He remembers his covenants forever. And what did he promise the Israelites through Father Abraham or through Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15? He promised a lot of things that he would bless the entire earth through this man's line, that 
he would receive or they would receive land, the land of Canaan. So his judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant, not just for a limited time, forever. That's important. Circle that. The word which he commanded for a thousand generation, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Don't you think this Abrahamic covenant must be important? The psalmist is harping on it. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac, and he confirmed it to Jacob, of course, and to Israel as a temporary covenant. No, he did not say that. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Everlasting, folks, in the Hebrew there means everlasting. Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan, Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. This was part of the covenant, the land of the people of Israel. Why do you think there's a massive fight for ages now in the Middle East? Because God has given the land to the Israelites. And it's the most fought off after land in the whole entire earth or world. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, don't touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. That was his commitment. I'll protect you, Israel. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provisions of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Anybody know the story of Joseph? Yes, by the way, this is an amazing way in which to do your devotions in the morning. Just do these two Psalms and go back into the Old Testament when you get to these different parts and read what happened to Joseph. I mean, I know you know, but he was sold as a slave, and they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free, and then he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his uh, pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. When did Joseph, when did that happen for Joseph? Where? Or where did it happen for Joseph? What'd you say? I just can't hear you. Yeah, Egypt. And Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham, or Egypt. He increased his people greatly. He's given you an overview of what happened. What, 70 people came in there? And they left with over 2 million or something like that? He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. That was one of the reasons that the Egyptians were getting sort of, you know, uh, very heavy-handed because they felt threatened by these people and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their hearts to hate his people. That's what happened, to deal craftily with the servant. Watch, now he goes on to a different history or the next step in history. It would be an amazing devotion. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, they performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham or Egypt. And he sent darkness and made it dark and they didn't rebel. He turned waters into blood, killed their fish. What's this talking about? 
How many plagues? Yeah, 10, and they don't recount all 10, but they give many of them. And he spoke, and there came swarms of flies in verse 31, lice. He gave them hail, 32, flaming fire. struck their vines, their fig trees, splintered the trees. He spoke, and locusts came and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. This is all talking about the history. He also destroyed all the firstborn of their land, the first of all their strength. And remember, this was the Passover he's speaking of, and now you can explain it because you say, yes, you see this amazing spiritual truth that God put into the Passover, that if you'll just take the blood of the lamb and put it over your doorposts, the angel of death will do what? pass over and you'll be saved, you and your family, and you can move on out in haste. And so you know that he destroyed all the firstborn in their land, verse 36, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed for the fear of them had fallen. Watch this. He spread a cloud for a covering. Now it's talking about the protection that God gave to them and the provision. Can you imagine? Well, you're going to see what happens. You know, being witness to lice, flies, bloody water. I mean, come on, bloody water. Are you kidding? And the frogs and the stink and the smell and how God would... When Pharaoh would say, we're going to let you go, uh, then it would be over. And the miracles that were happening. Can you be, imagine being a witness to all these miracles and then hearing the shrieks and the screams and the wailing of the people who didn't put the blood over their doorposts? And yet you look around and there are your babies, your kids, your wife, your husband, your grandma, your whatever, whoever, your ankles, whoever's living with you. Can you imagine the feeling you would have, the sadness for the other people, but the relief for your own family? And you've been witness to all of this. And then you set out into this desert area with some guy named Moses and a brother Aaron. Among all the millions of people, here he's leading. But God in his goodness, he really did this. He sent a cloud to cover them and to lead them in the wilderness and a fire at night. I mean, who? I mean, we read this and just sort of read it. This is miraculous. And what must you have been thinking if you were part of this caravan? That fire was given as light in the night, and the people asked, watch, watch. And he brought quail. He fed them, and he satisfied them with the bread of heaven, manna. I mean, seriously, folks. I'm going to give you manna. Every morning you wake up, you look outside the tent. There it is again. You scoop it up for the day. Next morning, oh, there it is. You start to be a crybaby and you say, huh, I hate the manna. God says, okay, I'll give you quail. So he feeds them with quail. We'll talk about that in the next psalm. 
And when they needed water, he opened up the rock, boom, and it gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river out in the desert. That's what this says happened. God would open up dry places and it would run like rivers for he remembered his holy promise. I want you to circle that, underline that, think about it, put it on your refrigerator. He remembers his holy promises and every promise he makes is holy, you see, because he made it. Warren Wearsby said this, God's people live on promises, not explanations. And it's through faith and patience that we see these promises fulfilled. And I want to read it again. I want you to write this down. Write this down for yourself. God's people live on promises, not explanations. Man, I can't believe you're having less or don't have more of a reaction to that because what do we all do? Why, God? Why? Why? And I understand it. I'm not making fun. I can see how we would say that. And yet, God's people are to live on his promise, not his explanation. And you see it in this. He would just call them out. He didn't tell them exactly where they were going or how they were getting there. It was just the next step. Just trust me in the next step. Trust me in the next step. Trust me in the next step. And he brought out his people. Listen to this. Verse 43. Isn't this wonderful to think about? I got to tell you, if I was in charge of the Exodus, I'm not sure I'd be real joyful. In fact, Moses struck the rock then struck the rock again. And remember what happened to Moses? He got frustrated with the people. That's what he was mad about. He was frustrated with the people. He was angry with the people. He didn't listen to God on how to strike the rock. And God said, well, sorry, Moses, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land because you misrepresented me to the people. I'm not upset with the people. I'm joyful with the people. That's what the Lord was saying in that thing. And look, he brought out his people with joy. That's what the Lord is thinking of us as sometimes, you know, we're walking with baby steps going, tell me why, tell me why. And he's like, oh, just hang on. I'd be like, relax back there. The Lord brings out his people with joy and his chosen ones with gladness. And he gave them the lands of the Gentiles. This is talking about the conquest of Canaan. And they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe, observe his statute and keep his, or keep his laws. Praise the Lord. Uh, what's one of the applications of this? Well, when the Lord's bringing you out step by step, just keep obeying, keep obeying, keep obeying. And... We're going to see what happens when you don't. That's the next psalm. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise In other words, it's impossible to praise him too much. Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. 
Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Some people believe, based on that little preamble, that this is a psalm that's coupled with Psalm 105, set in the, um, uh, um, the ba- or set against the backdrop of the Babylonian exile return, just about at the end of the exile where they're getting ready to return. I'll leave that up to you to keep studying. But look what happens here. The psalmist says, by the way, why were they put in uh, uh, exile? Two reasons. They didn't follow the Lord's directions with respect to the rest after the six years of planting, not to plant in the seventh year. They kept planting. They didn't rely upon the Lord. It's sort of the same thing we were learning back in the first Psalm. And they spiraled out of control in the area of idolatry. Those are the two things. And so this psalmist could have said, well, those terrible people, I can't believe they did that. But he didn't say that. He said, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They didn't remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Now, what is he talking about? Think about this. (laughs) This sort of gives you the rest of the story from Psalm 105. So here you go. You have these plagues. You see all these miracles. You have you'd put the blood over your doorpost and you heard the shrieks and the screams and the dying and the terribleness of, or the terrifying or the terror of all that was happening outside. But you looked around and your family was intact and you were sad for them, but you were relieved for you. And you got in the caravan and you sort of started marching. You didn't sort of, you started marching and you got out to the Red Sea and you had Something, you know, the enemy behind you in the sea in front of you. And all of a sudden you see the impossible. And here's what they started to do again. Why did you take me out of Egypt? Lord, Moses, Aaron, this isn't going to work. I can't believe you've brought us all the way out here to kill us. They rebelled by the sea. That's what the psalmist says. They rebelled. Uh, By the way, uh, if you went back into 1 Kings, uh, the psalmist here is claiming the same promises that King Solomon asked God to honor when he dedicated the temple. He's using the same language from 1 Kings. Uh, And so there's this interesting parallel uh, here between Psalm 106 and that time when Solomon was dedicating the temple, and they used some of the language. So whoever wrote this knew the word uh, really well. But getting back to what was happening, I mean, They saw all these incredible miracles and still they murmured and complained. Listen, I always say this every time we get here. Complaining 
is basically telling God, you have no idea what you're doing, Lord. That's what complaining is. But there's a difference between complaining and being real. There must be, because God says that we're to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to confess our sins one to another. So when you come into the church and you're feeling lousy, I personally think it's okay if you say, I feel lousy today. Can you help me? Can you come alongside me? Could you help pray with me? I feel lousy. Now, see, feeling lousy isn't you saying, God, you're the one who made me lousy. You just feel lousy. But when you cross that line between I'm lousy and it's your fault, now we're treading on thin ice. And that's the difference. Here, these people were blaming the Lord and dishonoring the leaders Watch this. Nevertheless, he saved them, oh my, for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who aided them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Oh, you know, the plagues wasn't enough, Lord. The Passover, good job, but I'm not sure it was enough. Red Sea, wow. You're three for three. And I really like it. That's how we think in the Christian life. But then go on to verse 13. They soon forgot his words. They believed his words. They sang his praise then they quickly forgot. It reminds me of the the song, the hymn, Prone to Wander, Lord, I Feel It. We're so fickle. They soon forgot his works. They didn't wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. Remember what God was doing? He was providing water. He was giving them manna. And then he said, but they said, ah, we want quail. So he goes, okay, you want quail? And he sends enough quail that when they're eating it, it's coming out their nostrils. It's just gross to them after a while. And you can find that in the Old Testament. And and they tested, they tested God in the desert and he gave them their request. But I want you to see something that's all the way, always the way it is with lust. It's like the peanut butter, excuse me, the chocolate and peanut butter that's sitting in my refrigerator now, ice cream. You just, you just, you know, you're sitting there and you're trying to resist and you're, you know, reading, you know, Leviticus or whatever you're reading and, All the while, it's just calling your name. Jan, Jan, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) And you know, you go down and you, you just load the bowl. I mean, you just load it. No, you know, no kids at home. Who cares? They don't need any anyway. And you just load the bowl and you know, you're stuffed. I mean, you're stuffed. And you clean up the bowl and you know, you might, read a few more chapters of Leviticus or watch some TV or whatever. And 
maybe your wife goes up to bed earlier than you do and you come up from the basement and you're not really feeling that great, but you're too. You see the refrigerator there, or excuse me, the, the freezer there again. And you're just like, maybe two more bites. And you pull that thing out and you just go for it. And what do you say every time as you start to lay down to bed? Why did I do that? I feel so terrible. And, and that's the way lust is, whether it be lust of a, a human in the sexual way or lusting anything. Shopping for more things or hobbies or toys or, or whatever it is. After you have it and attain it, there's leanness in the soul and there's no satisfaction. Ask Tom Brady. Go out and watch his 60 Minutes interview after either the second or third Super Bowl that he won. He won seven out of ten, much better than, you know, some of your favorite teams in here. But still, I know, I just do that to tweak Brad. But Tom Brady said, is this all there is? And I just heard him the other day say, it was so miserable for me because as the confetti was coming down and the guys were celebrating in the hotel, all I could think about was lifting weights on Monday. I couldn't get that fear of failure out of my heart. And there was this leanness in his soul and there was fearfulness. And pray for him, you know. Brad, you're in charge of that. <laughs> so... Leanness in this all. And then when they envied Moses in their camp. And Aaron, you could look at this in Numbers 16. You know there are these three people who rose up against Moses and the leadership and basically wanted to overtake them. And they did things with priestly in instruments that they shouldn't have been using. And they got killed. There was judgment upon them. They envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed this one of the three, Dathan, and covered the faction of Abram, and a fire was killed in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Here's another. I mean, come on, folks. Can you imagine in the day, let's say back then they had texts, and the people down below are texting, what's going on up there? Oh, hey, listen, we just, he just got done with number eight. Number t he's in the middle of number nine. We're chiseling number nine, in the commandment in there. Ten will be done soon. And, and listen, we're coming down in a few minutes. And, you know, they had to have known the people were coming down whenever they were coming down. I mean, at least there was a chance that they were coming down from the mountain. But they looked around and saw gold and things and Aaron and Aaron's like, cool, give me the earrings and we'll make a golden calf and we'll dance around it and take off her clothes and have an orgy. That's what they did. I mean, how quickly could they forget as the holy commandments were being set forth on the mountain? They started to worship this and they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eat grass. Look, they forgot God, their savior. That's what lust does. All you can think about is the chocolate and peanut butter calling your name out of the freezer. And you succumb to it. 
who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. By the way, here in the Hebrew, that word or that phrase in the breach is is as if somebody is at the gates preventing the enemy from getting in. That's why it's so important that we come together wherever, whenever it is, maybe we change the night or whatever, but Sunday nights, seven o'clock or any other time, get your family together and stand in the breach for your church, for your schools, for your homes, and to keep the enemy out. Pray to the Lord. That's what Moses was. He was a man in which God put into him this desire to intercede for others which is standing in the breach for other people. It's powerful. And Moses turned away his wrath lest he destroy them. Actually, God turned away his wrath. Moses was instrumental in interceding. Then they despised the pleasant land. They didn't believe his word. I want you to see this. But they complained in their tents. And we got to watch it. We wouldn't complain here because we're all smiley and we're shaking hands and we're putting on our best thing. But what do we say when we go home when we're with our husbands and our wives? Are we murmuring in the tents? They did. They complained in their tents and didn't heed the voice of the Lord. Look at that. Complaining and disobedience lumped right there together. God hates murmuring. Watch out what you say at home. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them into the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, scattered them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor. You could look in Numbers 25. Just go there and read it. They ate sacrifices made to the dead, and they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened. And the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forever. They went and got with a pagan group of people, the Israelites, the people of God, quickly as they're out in the wilderness, and they started worshiping this God and connecting themselves to this worship of this God, and it included sexual worship with others who weren't their spouses. And a plague broke out, and over 20,000 people were judged. They angered him also at the waters of Strice, Numbers 21 through 13, so that it went ill with Moses on account of him. This is where he lost his temper and misrepresented God to the people because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. They didn't destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles, learned their works, served their idols, which became a snare. Watch, folks. It, it, it developed into even sacrificing their kids when they got into idol worship. Oh, my. I mean, who would sacrifice their kids? Oh, we would. America, we've been sacrificing since the 70s. We praise the Lord for recent decisions, but more needs to be done. 
They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters. They sacrificed the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. That's they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. You see what happens when you compromise, when you don't believe, when you don't trust, when you complain and you murmur, and you talk behind people's backs in your own homes, and you just get away from the Lord, and you're lusting with your eyes, and you have the pride of life, and you want to be like the leaders, and you just don't live according to what God says, but you live according to what you say. You go to church, and you look good on the outside, but inside you're dead and rotting because you and I and we won't obey the Lord in the way he prescribes things. You see what happens? We become a nation that kills Babies. Unbelievable. Who ever thought such wickedness? And we call ourselves a modern, sophisticated society. It's just evil. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance and he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them their enemies oppressed them you know that Assyrians Babylonians and they brought into subjection under the land many times he delivered them but they rebelled in their cancel and were brought low for their iniquity and it's almost too hard to believe what you read next nevertheless he regarded their affliction <sighs> such long suffering such mercy such justice, such grace. When he heard their cry, and for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitudes of mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the Assyrians, the Babylonians, etc., the Gentiles. Why? What are we called back to? What are you and I, what are we called back to as we come into a relationship with the Lord, formerly children of wrath, enemies of God, and now in his family? What are we called to? We're called to give thanks to his holy name, to triumph in his praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. I mean, we'll close, but look, folks. Of all the rotten, evil, awful things, and God chastises people, even with the enemies of God, and yet, he held out for a remnant, remembering his promises and covenants, and he will with you and with us. And if you are far away from the Lord, get on your knees and repent and cry out to him and come back to the Lord, and he'll welcome us by the blood of Jesus. When you read in the scriptures, that our God is long-suffering. Remember Psalm 106. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much, and we just pray, Lord, whew, how long-suffering you've been with me and with us. 
It's easy to pile on somebody else, but you've done it for us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bless and bring us into a place of growing in Christ-likeness like your son more and more, Lord. I can't believe you even want to. And yet you do. And we're so thankful and grateful and humbled by your love and mercy, grace, long-suffering, and forgiveness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.